This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and I'm speaking with Jeremy Brecker, who is an author, historian. Uh, you're also a documentary filmmaker, and you're, uh, you've also been an activist uh, through, through your most of your adult life and possibly before. I don't know about your childhood. Um, I confess that all of those things are true. Okay. <laughs> all right. It's a good start. Jeremy, you have written a number of books, but the most recent is called Common Preservation in a Time of Mutual Destruction. Can you tell us what that's about and why you wrote it? The problems that we face are truly devastating. I'm thinking of climate change, most obviously, but still uh, all of my lifetime has been shadowed by the threat of nuclear war, and uh, we face levels of injustice, global poverty, and uh, many other both local and global environmental problems of, of the most acute kind that uh, are largely the result of the way we organize our life on Earth and the fact that we organize ourselves for governments, countries, nations, corporations, various uh, self-interested groups of, of many kinds, each after their own survival, their own self-aggrandizement. It's said that the first law of life is self-preservation. But what we live in today is a world where self-preservation is actually impossible unless we achieve it through common preservation. If all we do is pursue our own uh, aggrandizement for individuals and groups, then what we are going to end up with is suicide, self-destruction through climate change and through war and through environmental uh, destruction and degradation, not to mention through myriad forms of injustice. The idea of common preservation of uh, a change in strategy to make our own lives better and make our world survive for ourselves and our kids and each other is something that often seems impossible. How, how could we ever do that? How could we ever get beyond our self-destructive forms of seeking uh, our own self-interest to forms of seeking our self-interest uh, in common for each other. But the truth is that it happens all the time. We see, especially in social movements, people who are isolated and people who are, uh, as far as they can tell, powerless, uh, coming together in myriad ways to try to affect uh, the problems that they're facing. And you can see this uh, in the rise of the great social movements of the last 50 or 100 years the rise of the labor movement, the rise of the civil rights movement, the rise of the women's movement. And you can also see it on a small scale at a community level where uh, people face a problem, whether it's getting a stoplight uh, or uh, trying to get some control over an unruly police department. People all the time come together in, who have been separated and isolated come together to try to make some kind of collective solution to the problems they face. They don't always succeed, but you can see the process at work. And the idea of common preservation uh, in a time of mutual destruction is to explore how that process works and then think, how do we apply it to something like climate change? 
what are some good examples? Because uh, you know, certainly your experience with uh, uh, the the labor m- movement over the years would point to cooperation as being something that would work or is is a valuable way to go forward. But how do, right. how does it how does that work now, uh, particularly in a world where you have uh, because of our information systems, people are breaking into these little subgroups uh, of of self interest and think, hey, my way or the highway? How do, you, how do you get past that? Very, very good question. There's no magic formula, but the core of it is people have a problem, and they're trying to solve it by themselves, and they look around and they see that other people have the same problem. That's really the, the context, and when people begin to see that, then they can begin to say, well, wait a minute, is maybe we can do better at solving what we're experiencing and looking at it as an individual problem uh, if we act collectively. So let's just take the rise of the women's liberation movement as an example. And it's one of dozens and dozens that I give in Common Preservation and in my other uh, writings. The idea that was the predominant uh, strategy for American women in the period before the women's liberation movement uh, was to uh, try to get an education and get a good good husband and uh, that would be the way to have a good life and uh, it turned into uh, a more and more and more frustrating kind of strategy for more and more people and often that was an individual experience uh, but with the beginning of uh, what were called consciousness-raising groups, that were really women getting together and just saying, well, let's talk about the social dimension of the problems we're facing. And they were kind of based on a very traditional model of, a, of a, what was called a coffee clutch, where women would get together and have a social morning over a cup of coffee. That kind of very non-political self-organizing was turned to the purpose of saying, well, let's try to figure out whether there's something we have in common here. There's something about the fact that the only jobs that are available to us are mostly lousy, mostly things we would hate, and mostly things that are paid far less than men's jobs. Is there something that in the office we're expected to serve the coffee and clean up the mess in the kitchen, even though we're highly educated and skilled and capable of uh, doing the same kinds of jobs that the men are doing. And similarly, uh, in the home, is there a reason that we are doing all of the uh, housework, uh, including the most uh, menial drudgery parts, uh, uh, cleaning and uh, vacuuming and that kind of stuff, and um, the, uh, there's no expectation that uh, our husbands will take an equal share in doing those kinds of jobs. Well, as more and more women began sharing their experiences with this and then saying there's something screwed up about this, you began to get the beginnings of the women's liberation movement, uh, which then became wider and wider in the issues it confronted, uh, like abortion, for example. Why are women uh, not able to control what's happening with their own bodies? Uh, And uh, other things, why are 
the overwhelming majority of our political representatives men and only a tiny part women. And I could go on, on with the issues that came up once people began to say, wait a minute, why should this, uh, I have this problem, you have this problem, why shouldn't we try to do something about it? So I could give you dozens and dozens of other examples from the civil rights movement to the labor movement to more recently the uh, opposition to the Vietnam War to the Keystone XL pipeline, which after nearly a decade of being regarded as uh, something where the protests and opposition were futile, uh, just uh, yesterday or today, the company that's been trying to build that pipeline for a decade finally threw up their hands and said, okay, we give up. There isn't going to be a Keystone XL pipeline. You got to be in it for the long haul, obviously. There is definitely true that we're dealing with very, very serious, very big problems with people uh, and institutions that are wedded to the status quo and unwilling to uh, easily accept change. Mm. Uh, And so uh, I I say it's necessary both to be in for the long haul, but also at the same time to have it with, especially with something like climate change, but also injustice, also uh, hunger and poverty. It's important to have a sense of urgency along with the understanding that it's uh, a long-haul view is necessary. With regard to climate change in particular, how do we get, and I'm trying to think of the right way to frame this, uh, in, in particularly in the, the context of the, the last two elections, where I guess folks that you would consider typically uh, blue-collar workers broke in in decently <laughs> significant number for the Republican Party, which seems to either reject the notion of climate change or downplay it. How do you get those groups, and this is, and obviously it's by class, uh, how do you how do you get people to understand that if you're and they think this gets back to the XL pipeline because because the election went the way it did I think they saw the writing on the wall things aren't going to go their way but how do you bring folks back in to understand hey listen you're you're voting against your your own self interest here right so uh, th- uh, this is a, a problem that I am involved with working on and thinking about every day. I work for an organization called the Labor Network for Sustainability, which is devoted to trying to uh, work with unions and other worker groups to address the issues of climate change. And as you say, uh, there is a widespread feeling that there's a, uh, some kind of choice or conflict between jobs and the environment between the needs of workers and the needs of society for protecting the climate. This is largely a big lie that has been uh, fabricated and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Uh, From the very first international meetings on climate change, there's been a coalition of uh, the oil companies and other fossil fuel companies that has been devoted to opposing the idea of controlling and reducing greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. 
and their uh, core argument that they have used from that day to today is, oh, this will ruin jobs. This will take away jobs. Uh, Think of all the workers who are going to lose their jobs. This initiative has at its core the very, very well-funded efforts of the fossil fuel industry. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, many workers, especially in fossil fuel industries, have a very good reason to be concerned and worried. Uh, Although uh, green energy, renewable energy, climate protection policies will actually create far more jobs than are lost. You're listening to Radio Free Galisteo's interview with Jeremy Brecker. You can support Radio Free Galisteo at www.patreon.com forward slash Radio Free Galisteo. So one part of the answer is to keep explaining over and over that, in fact, this is a big lie and that protection of the climate will also be a great producer of jobs. And I think that that theme has been very wisely taken up by uh, uh, Joe Biden and the Biden administration to reframe the jobs versus uh, climate argument in that way. It, It needs to be carried much further. But there is one other serious aspect of this, uh, which is that if we shut down coal-fired power plants and fossil fuel power plants and uh, mines and wells that supply them and uh, uh, railroads that carry these fuels from one place to another and the other elements of fossil fuel infrastructure, there are people who will lose jobs as a result. And the number of jobs is not the only question because every job is important if it's your job. Right. And so we have to include as part of are the strategy of the climate movement and the strategy of climate legislation, what's often referred to as a just transition, a protection uh, and guarantee of the livelihood of those uh, workers and also communities who are adversely affected by climate policy. It's a small fraction of the total workforce, but it is unjust that they should have to pay the price and carry the burden for something that we all have to do. Uh, And so you'll find, if you look at my work and work on the website of the Labor Network for Sustainability, many concrete proposals for uh, how, how to conduct a just transition, how to ensure that workers are protected as we make the great change that we have to make to a fossil free, a climate safe economy. We have to figure out how to make that worker-friendly, and it can be done. Uh, but that's what I spend a lot of my time working on, is uh, analyzing and writing about how to actually do that. That whole concept, I, I guess, I don't want to keep going back to this, but with the last administration, which was giving voice to this, probably a very small but very vocal group of people who were terrified of this kind of change, uh, particularly in terms of their work because of immigration coming in, their work because of uh, the Green New Deal, uh, all these ideas, you you suddenly have, I, I guess, the, the birth of this uh, being referred to as eco-fascists who are saying, yeah, we need to preserve the environment for white people. 
what do we do about that? How do we get around, uh, let's, let's preserve the environment, but let's only preserve it for a particular race, uh, which seems to be fueling this, this issue of both immigration and, and you know, the job change because of climate change. I, my understanding is that this theme has been more widespread, actually, in Europe than in the United States. Mm. I'm sure there are people articulating it here, but, uh, and, and I may be missing something, but from what I've seen, um, most, of the, most of the right in its various forms uh, are still pretty much enmeshed in uh, climate denialism mm. and pretty much except the idea that if you're going to fight climate change, that's going to mean big government and it's going to mean more power that's going to interfere with our freedom to do whatever we want. Uh, and therefore, the, the denial of the reality of climate change um, has, I think, remains the main orientation of, uh, of the right in, in most of its various Form. And that's I the bigger danger is the, the, not, the denial of it is bigger than like, okay, yeah, you're right, but let's just make it for <laughs> this group. For one thing, it's very hard to do. How are you going to do it? Right. How are you going to uh, protect, how are you going to stop climate change for white people, but not for black people? I, I can't quite imagine how to do it. I am sure that you are right that there are small sects here and there that have uh, a rap that something uh, along the line of what you say mm-hmm. in the overall balance for the reason that uh, how would you that there's uh, almost impossible to imagine how you could protect white people from climate change uh, and not people of color uh, if you could protect uh, by means of what's called climate adaptation where for example you put up a a seawall or a dike or something uh, uh, around a city to prevent flooding, or you put out forest fires in white areas but not in black areas. Uh, There are some ways that uh, around issues of adaptation, it might be possible to discriminate in that way. Sure. Well, I'm I'm thinking more like immigration policy, this this thing on the extreme right where, you know, it's these populations that are trying to get into the United States that are they're overtaxing us uh, in in every way, and as a consequence, we need to keep them out. The the real extremists, and you're right. I mean, it's it, it's more of a European based thing. The 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 idea of genocide, in fact, uh, th- those are that's a real fringe element. But I mean, within the U.S., immigration policy may be pointed towards yeah, let's keep. Let's keep these poor these folks from these poor nations from coming in here. Let's preserve our space for us. Not not so much just right. cutting off uh, uh, white from black, basically white from everything else. Well, there's an interesting history to this because there was a campaign, uh, and I'm going to say 10 or 15 years ago, approximately, within the Sierra Club, which is the largest uh, U.S. environmental organization. There was a campaign to develop an anti-immigration policy very much along the lines of what you're saying. Hmm. Uh, and there was a big, big pushback and a counter-campaign against it. And eventually, the opponents of that way of thinking won out, and the Sierra Club has been certainly not been part of the anti-immigrant right. movement. 
Uh, I'm not going to say that their policy is ideal on every uh, aspect or anything like that, but as far as they're being uh, co-opted into the anti-immigration movement, that was tried and it was headed off. Got it. Um, so that doesn't mean it's true for every organization, and it doesn't mean that similar things couldn't arise again. But there's another dimension to the relation between immigration and climate, which is that climate change is responsible for a large and a rapidly growing proportion of immigration as mm. people are forced to leave their homes by unbearable conditions and drought and famine uh, and also war. Right. So one of the keys to uh, creating a situation where people are not forced to immigrate. And let's remember the very large part of immigration is due to people leaving unbearable conditions, mm -hmm. often conditions that are created either by climate change or by wars in which the United States has played a significant role. Mm -hmm. uh, so putting limits on climate destruction is a important, perhaps a crucial part of uh, allowing people to stay at home and make a living at home uh, without facing conditions that are so dreadful and draconian that they have to abandon their homes and go somewhere else just to be able to live. So I think climate change is a uh, cause of forced migration, and containing climate change is going to be a critical part of creating conditions where people can stay at home and make a living and, and live. What do you want people to take away? What's What do you think is the most important takeaway from common preservation in a time of mutual destruction? Well, the first thing is that our individual strategies don't work, and they're leading us into catastrophic conditions. But there are ways that we can reach out to each other and develop uh, common interests and common forms of action. And you can see that over and over. And if you want to know more about it, you can take a look in common preservation, because that's what it's about. And it's about how to do it, how we do it, why it works, and why people can develop the power to make change when we feel so powerless and so isolated. And that feeling of powerlessness is often something that's manipulated, uh, as I've indicated as we've talked here today. Uh, and it's something that when we look at the reality of what social movements are able to do and what ordinary folks are able to do, you can begin to overcome that manipulation and find how to work with the people that you really share interest with and need to cooperate with in order to realize your self-interest through common preservation. You've been listening to Jeremy Brecker, who is an historian documentary filmmaker, activist, and author of Common Preservation in a Time of Mutual Destruction. Available now through PM Press at www.pmpress.org. You can support Radio Free Galisteo at www.patreon.com forward slash Radio Free Galisteo. For Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.